Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the essential role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations, and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding, and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to the 13th episode of Design Your Life, from Lego to Skyscrapers. Today I catch up with two of the directors of Kerry Hill Architects, Sean McGovern and Patrick Kosky. Kerry Hill Architects is an architectural practice recognized globally for their stunning Amman resorts, striking private residences and empathetic city shaping projects. Listen in as they unpack their approach to designing wellness and the importance of honing your craft with purpose and rigor. Welcome to Design Your Life. Thanks very much, Vince. Good yeah. to talk to you. Hi, Vince. Hey, so good to finally get together. You guys are in Perth. We're in Sydney. Been to Perth a lot. Walked past your office there in Fremantle. Uh, spectacular place. Left a few business cards and magazine once. <laughs> Never heard from you guys again, but that doesn't matter. Uh, we've connected now, and um, it's really, really, uh, I guess I have to say, an honor to actually connect with you guys because you are phenomenal as an organization, and the work that you do is just unbelievable. Uh, and I've come in contact with a couple of your places overseas. Some of the resorts that you've done are just places you just never want to leave. And uh, so you, incredible, incredible uh, body of work. Uh, a little while back, we reconnected our team with your team around One Circular Key. I'm not sure what's happened with that, but um, like a lot of projects, they kind of can be quite long-term um, in their kind of implementation. Um, you guys are based in Fremantle, as I said, which is in Perth, and which is Western Australia, for those who are not from Australia. <laughs> Most remote city in the world, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's right. It's pretty much um, as far away as any city in the world, and every other city is closer somewhere else than Perth is. And how does it feel? I'm going to talk about kind of both of you and how you came to coming to Australia and, uh, you know, uh, to the practice at Kerry Hill. But how did you guys manage the, the COVID situation over the past year or so? It wasn't. It was. It was strange at times, but I suppose that sort of isolation, in a way, that we kind of benefited from it. But I guess we have been used to operating these two offices in Singapore and Perth, and then you know, sort of having contacts internationally and and doing a lot of work over east. We'd sort of been engaged in this whole video conferencing. Uh, Sort of means in which of working uh, for for quite a few years, and it kind of didn't seem like that big of a transition to kind of move into sort of digital meetings, and yeah, that kind of means of working kind of transitioned quite easily. But in terms of the isolation itself, I suppose living in Paris, you're kind of used to traveling quite a bit to to go to other places, and mm. mainly that's been sort of uh, the main thing that you've missed out on is that sort of international or interstate travel. But then 
to an extent we kind of benefit from that. We live in such a large place that you start to reconnect with Western Australia a bit more. Mm. I think we were fortunate with the timing. We had quite a lot of work in, I guess, delivery and documentation stage. I think as sort of the design tasks in the office emerged, it became a bit more challenging. I think there's nothing that uh, is sort of substitutes for face-to-face interaction and all those non-verbal communications that happen when you sort of design and discuss with with, um, your team around the table are really important. So I think while it was an interesting sort of journey, it was brief, luckily for us in Western Australia, and, you know, I think we were all glad... Well, we were certainly glad to get back to the office and get talking to everyone again. It's been pretty tough for, for a lot of people, but I guess in, compared to the rest of the world, we're relatively safe, um, especially Western Australia. You didn't have any cases, did you? No, we definitely had cases. We oh, had did you? Couple, yeah, we had a couple of cruise ships land. Oh, that's right, that's right. That brought a bunch in. Um, and But then the Germans, they were predominantly Germans, the German government paid to repatriate them all back to Germany and fly them back on chartered flights. So, <laughs> you know, that was, we were, we were quite fortunate. And we, you know, for the first time, you know, we often say about Perth, you would say, oh, it's the most isolated city in the world. And it would always be a sort of negative thing. And all of a sudden everyone's saying, we're the most isolated city in the world. <laughs> That's a yeah. positive thing. You know, Yay. <laughs> So it was interesting that, I guess, that turnaround and suddenly what had long time been, I guess, a bit of a disadvantage in terms of global connection became a kind of advantage in a sort of pandemic scenario. But, yeah. But it is is interesting, isn't it, that um, I guess probably maybe not for you because you probably have people every time you meet someone, they probably talk about the same subject matter (laughs) about being the most isolated city in the world. Um, but but it's um, an incredible modern city, and, and I've, I've been there recently, and I just, um, uh, well, often actually, and I really enjoy the city. It's incredibly clean, amazing beaches. Um, you can see that the kind of infrastructure is changing uh, quite dramatically, and um, you guys are obviously playing a major part in that. I regret met not, not meeting Kerry Hill, um, just people listening in. He, he was a person, and unfortunately he passed away in 2018. And um, obviously, he was the founder of the practice and, and grew it, I guess, from an individual um, to what it is today. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, certainly, he was the founder of the practice. Um, you know, he was born in Perth. Uh, he was part of the architecture course at UWA, their first cohort. Mm-hmm. And then, upon graduation, worked for a, part of, a few months in Perth and then went up to Bali and kind of fell in love with Southeast Asia and then set up the practice um, initially in Jakarta, then up in Singapore. And the practice, so its roots are in Southeast Asia. Um, and I think that adds a whole dimension to the practice. Um, the Singapore studio is still strong and thriving um, as well. So they have about 40 people. We have about 40 people here in Perth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent six years in Singapore in the early 2000s after graduating, working with Kerry there. Um, but yes, Kerry very much was the founder and set, I guess, the, the DNA of the practice um, up in that process um, of founding it. And, you know, there's a big body of work that he produced in that time. And I've been working for Kerry for about 20 years. Um, and have been involved in a number of those projects since he set that up. So, yeah, and that's a sort of interesting 
topic in and of itself around, I guess, transition yeah. uh, for a practice that has a, a strong identity and, and single founder, um, yeah. but obviously has a support network of people within the practice to enable the production of the architecture uh, within the practice. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, we're sort of three years out from Kerry's death and um, we're certainly we were certainly keen to continue the practice. We had undevelop it, yeah, yeah, and develop it. So, um, and you know, it's been interesting. I guess that process we have sustained and got new clients through this process. Um, and you know, we're sort of thinking about, I guess, the pivot and the evolution of the practice from this point. Yeah, it, it was interesting talking to a number of people that have called their firm after their name. Um, I mean, I, I did the same in, back in um, 2004. And as many times I've talked to people and, I, and they said, why did you do that? That's ridiculous. You shouldn't have done that. <laughs> You're always going to be tied to the business. And the people within the business are kind of in a way, you know, it affects their potential kind of career growth and, or visibility, and if you like. Um, but that's kind of a, it's a common thing to happen in, in architectural practices and design companies, isn't it? Kind of comes from that tradition that, you know, architects would have, the start of the 20th century would have been quite a traditional thing to just name your office after your surname, much as the way of lawyers and accountants because yeah. of that sort of professional base. But I suppose as architecture has moved more into, I suppose, a bit more of a creative industry and the way a creative industries kind of move between ownership and uh, probably more regularly than that kind of historic lineage of, you know, professional firms being transitioned to, sort of associates and then they become partners and you know architecture's kind of moved away from that a little bit more into a sort of company structure and yeah uh, probably you're right it's it, that sort of nomenclature around it is a bit different yeah i was talking to jean luca at his director at um zaha did's office in in london and and you know when when zaha sadly passed away you know the world we thought that was the end of the practice, but they've obviously continued to grow and flourish beyond that. And that, I guess, is a testament to the founder to ensure that there is a team and a structure and, and an ongoing practice that can grow and improve on that. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was – I listened to that podcast, which I thought was really interesting. And um, there were a couple of words that um, were used in the discussion around the longevity of the practice, and that was enabling and empowering the people mm. within within the practice to really continue that. And I think, um, you know, Kerry did that. He he did enable people to contribute meaningfully to the design work in the practice, which is, you know, I think in order to retain talented designers, you need to allow them to contribute. You know, it's an important thing. Mm. Um, so I think you know, he did enable and empower us to continue the practice. And that comes through a long working relationship with Kerry. And that relationship is, you know, it's a sort of somewhat symbiotic relationship. There's, you know, obviously we're learning a lot from Kerry, which is great. And then we're hopefully contributing to the practice and contributing to the design thinking in the practice. So I think that's, that, that has occurred and that really has enabled the continu uh, continuation of the practice. Yeah. So as I said before, you're both uh, directors of the practice. Sean, how did you end up with Kerry Hill? Yeah, look, uh, what was it, 2010? And obviously GFC wasn't as big a deal in Australia. Australia seems to manage it. But 
being in Ireland or anywhere outside of London, uh, it was pretty brutal for anybody in the architecture industry. So me and my wife were both architects, so uh, we just thought we'd have a go and see what we could do the other side of the world. We're pretty ambitious people. And uh, I just went door knocking and I basically looked at you know things that interested me in, in Perth and the architects that had been producing good work in Perth and in this kind of region. And uh, yeah, look, Simon at the time, Patrick uh, said, come in, let's have a chat. Just happened to be a weekend at Kerry was down uh, from Singapore, so I got to meet all three of them. And yeah, they, they said, "Yeah, look, we want ambitious people in the office." So I, uh, I was happy to get on board. And is your wife working in the practice as well? No, she 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 worked for other practices in in Paris, and uh, probably made that decision. We were working together whenever we were in Belfast. We uh, we managed four years working together, so we we. Went our separate ways whenever we got to Perth. Wow, what a what a contrast though from there to to Perth though. How did you adjust to the Aussie way of life and architecture? Oh, it was pretty easy to adjust to the Aussie way of life. Uh, adjusting to architecture in this office, it wasn't. Uh, I guess the important thing with Kerry and what's been instilled in this office is that high degree of. First of all, the importance of design and the importance of design investigation, but also the importance of rigor and craft. And they were kind of things that really interested me anyhow before I came to Perth. So it was really just the environment in this office. You know, I I know you've called in a few times, but this office really is so... uh, creative in the way it's just, you know, the atmosphere that we have in here and, you know, we've got models around the place and there's constantly a dialogue around design. There's various meetings going on. So it's not like people are sitting behind computers all day, just sort of drafting up uh, sort of designs that have been handed down that there is a, an involvement among all levels of the staff from, from juniors to the directors. And I guess that's what I find really exciting about working here at the start and something that I felt was appropriate and wanted to continue with Patrick and, and Simon and, and then Kerry, obviously. And did you go did you go back much to Ireland? I used to go back every year and a half, but I haven't been back for about three or four years now since COVID and all of those things. So Nothing Still, personal. It's nothing personal, Belfast. Nothing personal, no. No, look, it, it, it was, Belfast was great. And Belfast was great in those 10 years after I graduated. And it was a great place to be. It had changed a lot after the peace process. Uh, I was running an office in Belfast. But it was just one of those things that the work was uh, just drying up. And we both had teaching jobs there at the university. But we uh, we wanted to sort of work at this sort of design and practical end of architecture and, and actually see projects through. So it was something that we've never regretted. It was a great move. Mm, fantastic. And Patrick, you you left uh, uni and went straight into your first job at uh, Kerry Hill, right? Yeah, that's right. I, um, I got recommended, one of two people that got recommended for an interview with Bob Allen, who was the partner down here at the time, in this office actually, and... Um, 
I went to the interview and he just asked me one question. He said, do you know how to use this program AutoCAD? <laughs> yeah. I just learned it at uni and he said, you got the job. So, Are you serious? Yeah. And then um, wow. the work dried up in the Fremantle office and then my partner actually decided she wanted to go to Singapore. So she went to Singapore. She was a landscape architect oh, and cool. ended up working on a project with Kerry up there. And I decided I'd go and join her. And then um, Kerry got wind of the fact I was coming up and asked her in a meeting, oh, do you know this uh, guy, Patrick, who's coming up? And she was like, well, actually, he's my boyfriend. Um, and from that, I had an interview with Kerry and started working in Singapore for six years, which was a, a really great experience, a really intense uh, time up in the office. A lot of, I think, evolution in design thinking that was happening with Kerry at the time. And, mm of a hot house up in the attic in the top sort of story of a shop house where the design happened which was um which was great and then yeah moved back to perth and i'm now sitting in the same desk i sat in <laughs> when i graduated from university what, same um, chairs and everything same chair no we changed the chairs so yeah we had these very nice heavy designer chairs that didn't last unfortunately but <laughs> they're they a bit hard uh so no it's been a, a bit of a journey and a bit of a circular journey in some ways so and t- 20 years ago, what's... what's circles in life. I mean, they're sort of, you know, sort of interesting what yeah, happens. Yeah. So. And, and 20 years ago, what was the size of the practice? Uh, we were around, I think, about 20 or 25. We had a couple of people down in Fremantle working on a couple of houses down in yeah. Australia. Um, and then about 20 people up in the Singapore office. Yeah. I love talking to directors of firms like yours who have been there for quite some time and, and talking about, it's like, I think John Lucas said he was there when he was 20 people uh, yeah, or yeah. two people uh, or I, I can't remember the exact yeah, number. Yeah, but it was when I, yeah, I remember the news. Yeah. But even in Perth, whenever I joined 10 years ago, there was 15 of us and now there's 40. So uh, it does, the, the, the practice has, yeah, really, I suppose, diversified in terms of its, work but also being able to manage itself to to engage with lots of projects um, and uh, the office has kind of grown exponentially related to that but i think it's important that that's been actually that's quite a long time you know that's been a progressive increase there's not really been an interest by kerry to go as big a company as he could create he was always intensely concerned about the quality of work um, so not to say there aren't organisations who can do good, you know, really good designers at big scale um, mm. of offices, but the thinking was, you know, that's a manageable size around the 40 mark for a studio um, and a size that allowed a good involvement yeah. in, in all aspects of a project. Um, mm. So there's been a progressive growth, but not a sort of sudden <laughs> uncontrolled expansion. Yeah, steady growth. And... Can we just talk about a bit about Kerry? Because I'm really intrigued to understand what he was like as a person. What, what, what was his background? How did he start off? Well, as I mentioned, he um, went to UWA in Perth. Uh, I mean, he was born in Perth and went to UWA um, and then graduated. He worked for a company called Cox Howlett and Bailey. Well, it was called Hallett and Bailey, Bailey in the day yeah, before yeah, Cox came up. Yeah. So it was Hallett and Bailey in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jeff Hallett was a very um, 
you know, flamboyant modernist architect, but a great architect. He designed Council House, which is one of the most fantastic um, modern buildings in Australia, without a doubt, possibly mm-hmm. the world. Um, he won a competition to do that. Um, so he was quite influential, I think, on Kerry. Um, and but he was Kerry was there for quite a short time before he moved to Bali and worked um, for Palmer and Turner, who were a Hong Kong-based company building the Bali Hyatt. Um, while he was in Bali, he met Adrian Zecker, who was a, the founder of Aman Resorts, who at that stage was just starting to set up this company that was doing, I guess, what you would call now boutique eco-resorts. Mm. Um, but this was in the sort of late 70s, early 80s in Bali, and um, it was a, a quite a pioneering idea. Um, and mm. Kerry worked with him then over the course, you know, until, until he passed away, he worked with Adrian um, on... Amazing. projects throughout the world in some of the most amazing locations. So, yeah, Kerry sort of grew the practice um, with that Amun work. Mm. Um, it was a very important client-architect relationship that yeah. in a way set up the foundation of the practice um, and also delivered, you know, some of the most, you know, I'm probably a bit biased, but, you know, some of the most beautiful places, um, resorts, that have been built um, throughout Asia, even the world, in the last you know, 20, 30 years. So, yeah. It's, it's yeah, interesting, then, yeah. interesting that, just interrupt. Um, what was it about him that gave him that kind of skill to design those resorts? Because I've stated a few over, over the time, and just like they're unbelievable, spectacular places. It's just, you just don't think it's come out of an Australian or from Australia. You think it's kind of homegrown. Gary was a really thoughtful man, you know, in, uh, in my experience, and he had... A really deep appreciation I felt of his context and the context that he was working in with various projects. Surprising, not surprisingly, interestingly and very, you know, insightful in, at times with his lateral understanding of sites and architecture that you know, you'd be taken aback uh, sometimes as to just how left a field he could come in with, with various ideas and uh, that had, a, I think, a big influence on myself. Uh, just that sort of, you know, the way he was able to sort of absorb all these sort of suggestions and that came from various designers in, in the office and then be able to, I suppose, assemble them or disassemble them and, and sort of transition into some of these projects that we have. Um, but, yeah, certainly that sort of appreciation of context in the early days and some of those projects that had that environmental response to those sites. We used to talk about the tropics and mm. how buildings needed to respond to the air movement and light and um, the various climatic conditions. I think he was very much had an appreciation of that, but over overlaid with that uh, understanding of modernism but that sort of big M modernism mm. and how that sort of translated into an appropriate architecture um, for both the, the resort typology but also in the tropics. That's interesting because I, when I've been to those places, it's just been probably most of the time it's to recover from working too hard. So it has always been a bit of a holiday. And I, I naturally just feel that those places have been designed for well-being at the heart of the experience, you know, with the light and the air movement and... Obviously, there's always an incredible spa there as well to enjoy. But was he was he really a, a focused on well-being? I think he was focused on 
you know, in a way, these were sort of um, quite small scale, often in natural environments, small scale buildings uh, in natural environments. And he was very interested in prioritising nature and the landscape. And it's maybe not as recognised that aspect of the work. Um, so I think there's an intrinsic connection then between, I guess, experience of nature and experience of landscape and feelings of well-being and, mm. and I guess, therapeutic spaces. Um, so I think it's sort of, they're sort of the same thing in a way that we're talking about um, wellness and, ex- you know, experiencing landscape and light and air, as mm. mentioning, and climate. And, you know, I guess, you know, we spend so much of our lives really in modified climates, um, working in air-conditioned spaces, mm. uh, a lot of us. Um, who work, you know, who are sort of white-collar professionals, I guess. Um, so it is therapeutic to, you know, in my opinion, to be out in nature at times and obviously doing that in a holiday environment is always, you know, makes one feel connected to nature and, and is yeah. therapeutic. Must have been a sensitive guy to be a design in that way, I think. It's interesting because yeah. also there's a bit of a comparison with tropo architecture in, in, you know, the NT um, I don't know if you've been up there and seen some of their buildings that just really free-flowing air, you know, just incredible, a lot, lot of outdoor areas and stuff. Um, not not as luxe as, obviously, uh, what you guys were doing. Yeah, I think the, the, the climate in those places enables a very loose division between indoor and outdoor, which are, they're always beautiful spaces to be in where you don't have strong line between outdoor and indoor. But I... I think there was, you mentioned something there before, Vincent. I think Kerry was a very empathetic person. You know, he, he, he had empathy, but he also had that combined with a very sort of decisive clarity about things. So it was sort of the combination of most of those things, which I think created these very, um, what are very simple plans in some ways, but they're quite complex and empathetic spaces in terms mm. of the environment. Yeah. I think every architect needs to have a degree of intuition, you know, and to be able to make decisions and whether that's through that design process so at, at some stage you actually have to make a decision and, and Kerry was as I said sometimes it was just came, would come out of nowhere and yet that decision was you know proved to be correct in the end and uh, it was yeah it did seem to have a, a very strong intuition as to how projects could be resolved it's it's when you look around. I remember when I first came to Australia and I went to say Paddington, and I'm going, oh my god, this is just England, English architecture. <laughs> no, no context, no uh, sympathy with the co- completely different temperatures and light and air and everything. Yeah. Um, it's obviously evolved a hell of a lot from that time. Uh, you know, just you know, it's evolved and adapted to being more sympathetic or more empathetic to. Uh, different cultures, different landscape, different air and climate. That must have, t- I mean, that's interesting how far, I wonder how far that, how how important he was in that evolution as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that romantic longing for an English setting that obviously must have sort of plagued the colonial imagination when people first came to Australia and led them to construct these places which were very reminiscent of those, um, mm. those settings. Um, as, you know, Australia has matured and gained independence and, you know, they're all happening, I think, these things in parallel. Mm. 
I think where Kerry sort of contributed to that is to actually step outside that Australianness in a way yes. and embrace a sort of, you know, in many ways specifically Asian, when a lot of people were looking to Europe for their inspiration. It's interesting, Kerry sort of took a left turn and went to Asia and then saw the sort of rich cultural um, potential of these really diverse um, countries and, and places within Southeast Asia and saw how architecture could celebrate um, some of that rich culture, I think. And In both practices, there's always been a diversity of the people that have worked within the, the practices. So you have this kind of cultural exchange within the practices now also. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, you're bringing ideas from different parts of the world to a, an unfamiliar context in one way, but sort of it has that degree of familiarity just because of the, suppose, the European settlement in, in Australia. But, you know, even in the, the Asian context, you, you, it was kind of the reverse, you know, that you had some of these expats that were working in this Asian context, but obviously there's so much to learn, like the architecture that has existed in Southeast Asia that, you know, has been there for three, four, five thousand years. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to draw upon there just in terms of the cultural manifestation of, of architecture that, you know, how that translates into the northern portion of Australia is probably more appropriate than stone buildings that were built in northern Europe, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, as, as, I, I kind of feel like he played a major part in bringing that uh, that, uh, that style, the, kind of the Asian approach, to Australia. Um, and obviously we'll talk more about uh, the projects you guys have done over the recent years, which are unbelievable. Just want to talk about we're talking about historical houses. The, the, the Treasury Hotel or the Treasury uh, in uh, in Perth is a Treasury building, right? Well, the collection of buildings is called the State Buildings because even better they brought together the what was the original Treasury. Yep. Uh, then there was the Lands Building, which was where sort of legal administration over sort of. Uh, various matters to do with the, the zoning or the lands, and then there was the titles building where everybody's title was stored. So mm-hmm. massive big vaults in the base of that building. And from an architectural point of view, it's probably the most famous in the Perth context. Mm-hmm. Designed by George Tabapool, was seen as being a sort of masterpiece of Italianate revivalist architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the proportions of the building with the double deck veranda. Uh, along the east so yeah the collection of buildings itself is called the state buildings but mm-hmm. the treasury is just one of them and uh, the Como took the name of that treasury building to call itself Como the treasury yeah I mean I've stayed a couple times at the Como um, I think you mentioned it before but uh, there was one time I just checked in and I literally stayed there for probably two days and never left the room they were in there massive rooms there's something and I kind of just when I was sitting there lying there <laughs> wandering around my room, which is like the size of a basketball court. Um, I was There was something about it that then when I heard, because I didn't know until I stayed there, that it was a Kerry Hill project. Um, yeah. And it, then it kind of clicked going, oh, okay, now it makes sense. There's something about it. I mean, spectacular building. Obviously, the bones of the building is incredible in the first place, but how it's furnished, how the light, the, the air, all those things. It's not in Bali. It's in Perth. And it's a historical building, but somehow you guys have managed to kind of capture that 
that incredible feeling, um, which gives me certainly gave me a lot of comfort, and no doubt many people that kind of feeling of pleasure, enjoyment, uh, relax, genuine relaxing in a in a in in a place, and that oh, there's something special to uh, to be said about that that kind of that feeling that you've designed. I mean, how how the hell do you do it? Well, thank you first of all, but uh, look. That, that project was, it was a really important, important project for Perth because what had happened was that it had sat there for, I think it was about 15, 20 years and really acted as a big blockage to actually allow the CBD to expand to the east. Mm. And it was kind of, Adrian, Finney and Kerry had, had been sort of, developing a relationship when Adrian was working at Mervac and had started to investigate a few projects together. And look, they sort of were trying to understand how you could unlock a building like that. Mm. And, you know, the idea was that, you know, he had these very cellular buildings and how you could sort of sensitively open that building up to not only the urban realm, but to a, a particular use and, you know, obviously Kerry's experience from working in hotels and then translating that degree of luxury that was, I suppose, able to be built among that sort of more natural context. And Mm -hmm. then sort of how could you create that luxury within this urban context? And it was always seen as being this urban retreat and being able to create that quietness and stillness within these buildings, which have this permanence within the city, but that needed to be contrasted against the ground plane. And the idea was to try and open up that ground plane entirely to the, the public realm. So it, I think a lot of the successful things in that building are the kind of transitional spaces where you come from these sort of hustle and bustle of mm. the postal hall or the various F&B, yeah. and then you sort of transition quietly up onto the upper corridors and you sort of find yourself, like I've stayed there, Patrick stayed there, you find yourself, you know, really finding a lot of quietness in that building, which I think, I think one of the early moves with that building, you know, one of the, the very first things was to set up a hotel within it that didn't fight against the existing structure of the building. Mm. That, you know, that took on, and part of the reason your room was the size of a basketball court, was <laughs> there was not a desire to start to try and infill these cellular spaces with more rooms and what that would have really diminished mm. the fabric of the building. And I think everyone would have known that when they walked in there, they would have gone, yeah. this didn't quite fit here. Whereas what has been allowed to happen is things feel like they fit very comfortably and naturally in those spaces because that early decision was made to let the building determine the functions within mm. it rather than the reverse. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like uh, when you talk to probably a lot of developers or operators, they would say that was a luxury because they would just, you know, the hallways are like a, like a double lane road <laughs> and, and, and they feel amazing. Don't they you walk down there and you just feel, you feel liberated. You feel, you just feel comfort in the scale of it. And I guess uh, most people just have, have hacked it up. Uh, thank God it get, didn't get torn down. But I'm, I am happy if we could actually move it brick by brick to Sydney. I think we need that here uh, desperately. Um, and above it, there's the, the private club, Mellow House, yeah. um, which I joined and I've never been back, unfortunately. Um, 
But, I, you know, I just I was actually came back and said to my kids, guys, we've got to move to Perth, you know. I've stayed at this amazing place. I don't care what the rest of Perth's like. I want to live there. <laughs> um, but I would just go there to have meetings. If I, if I was in Perth, I'd be there every day. So I know I'm really promoting it. Um, I, I genuinely feel it is spectacular. And, you know, that sensitivity, when you see that kind of sensitivity approach to a historical building and what that means to Perth's future, and as you said before, it kind of was kind of blocking the development of, thank God that it didn't get torn down. Uh, like it would have done in other places, but it's actually become something even more incredible as a result of being in very sensitive, empathetic hands. Uh, it's 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 kind of this reuse and, um, you know, in maintaining that historical uh, landscape of the city is is really important part of, I guess, how we um, evolve cities today. I was interesting when I, when I looked at your, well, I should look at your website, which is, let's talk about that very briefly. I don't want to insult you, but you've only got one page, and about on that page looks like about five fonts for some reason, and and uh, about, I don't know, three or four postage stamps of buildings which are slightly blurred, so I can't quite make out what they are. But let's talk about that, because, I mean, when I look through the portfolio of work that you, you've done and you've sent me, um, most recent work, and I go, oh, my God, like, does the world know not through your website, they don't. But does the world know what you guys are doing as a as a as a team there? Websites are dead, Vince. Are they? Nobody goes on, nobody goes on websites anymore. It's all about social media now, Twitter. So the, is, it, uh, is it come around full circle? Is that like a is that like a twenty year old website you got there? Start yeah, we start doing portfolios again, buying <laughs> buying portfolios. Oh, the black yeah. ones, the ring bound ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We I suppose have worked with a lot of clients who like a degree of discretion about their work Mm -hmm. and then we've worked with other clients who kind of publicize their work without us needing to publicize it yeah so there's kind of a balance between the two so if you take the institutional work that we've done like say the state theater center or the city of perth library or even i suppose the hotel work that we've done Mm -hmm. it gets pretty regularly published in various uh, sort of online platforms and we get quite a high profile with that. Mm-hmm. And then we have that sort of discrete work that we do for people where we do houses and sort of more private and mm-hmm. remote projects. I, I think, um, you know, Kerry was somewhat of an enigma as a person, you know, as, mm-hmm. as you know, great architects often are, you know, um, yeah. because it's very hard to articulate the design process to people. So I think that enigmatic quality and the quality of mystery, they're powerful marketing concepts as well, you know, and I think at the moment they, they sort of work for the office mm. um, that we, we don't sort of feel the need to, um, you know, continually keep updating and have news feeds coming out of the office all the time and all of that sort of, it also drives a kind of speed that we don't really operate at, to be honest, you know, we, we do, if we can, like to take things a bit slower, um, especially the kind of evolution and design and thinking about a project. So, um, like, we have two projects in the office at the minute that have been in the office for twelve years, and they're still <laughs> live. They're still live projects. It's not a website, is it? No. Not because of us, I might add. Just, just get that out there. Uh, of course not. It wouldn't be you two. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on Kyoto. Took I think it was 21, 22 years mm-hmm. from inception to completion wow you know so a lot of some sort of 
burn quite slowly and that kind of suits us as well. But then how, you know, in a, in a world where people are sort of updating their news feed to say, we just got the, uh, we've just appointed the builder. We sort of, yeah, as Patrick said, we don't really operate. So or we don't try and force ourselves to operate at that speed mm. uh, because it's, to us, it's more about, well, it's two things. It's, I suppose it's a responsibility to the client and it's a responsibility to the design. And, and they're the two most important things for us in, in, in what we do as architects. I think it's really interesting that in a world that is so obsessed with social media, so obsessed with being visible and, and well, I guess I'm doing it right now with a podcast. <laughs> we're going to be promoting it and we'll show, show your work and, you know, try other people to enjoy it. Um, and we're obviously a design and branding business that we, every, every, or every project we do is about helping to elevate people's brand and yeah. focus their positioning and helping them to be more successful. Um, but it's interesting the way that you're working because you go, well, hang on, this goes against what everybody else is doing. And that's how people used to be. People used to work in the way that you're working. I mean, maybe the, maybe people are still working that way, but their outward image, I guess, through probably the website and social media is far is normally far more, I guess, uh, dynamic and more active. Um, I know I know a design company in London that had one page website, and they were the busiest business in in London. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of and, oh, actually, there's one in New Zealand too. Another design company in New Zealand had one page. Hmm. And they were highly successful, and they were absolutely focusing on the work, relationships, doing things really, really well, the design dialogue, the conversations about design, and coming together and, and taking time over things. And, and and again, in a world where everything is so fast, everything is so kind of you know technology driven, um, using using technology in ways to make things more efficient, faster, uh, more visible. It's refreshing to hear you talk about, sl- you know, a slower approach or a, a more dedicated focus on the craft of design. Yeah, well, that that was important to carry, and I, I think it's important to me. Can't speak. For, imagine it's a, the same for Patrick, but you know, that's where our reputation lies. Is in these this idea of. of crafting architecture, not just through the early stages, but right through to the, the detail and, and how, how we put things together. You know, it's, it was a strange thing, I suppose, when you're talking about the transition from uh, Belfast to, to Perth and, and working with this practice, that was probably a strange thing for me uh, in terms of the degree to which what was known or what was unknown about about the practice, but also I found that really fascinating as time went on. That you know, there's a kind of the design is more the most important thing, you know. And then once you start to execute the, the designs to such a, a fine and, and and beautiful degree, there will be other people then will want to come and, and talk to you about your work mm. and, and possibly get a commission yeah. and, and possibly follow through that next commission and then the, the process just continues. And to me, that's I, I find that, that that was a fascinating strategy that had been put in place 
and that, that we continue now. Well, I think it's interesting because it was deliberate. It wasn't just because it didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, some people would just say, well, we actually try to do a website, we try to do this, try to do a brand, but we just got too busy and we just left it. That might I be think, the truth. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, look, if Architecture Australia wants to publish one of our projects, we will, you know, we would be, you know, we're more than mm. happy to support that. We do think that there's an important architectural dialogue that occurs yeah. and that we want to be part of that dialogue um, yeah. in terms of what is, you know, an Australian and international architecture and a contemporary architecture. Mm-hmm. But just, I guess, investing our energy into promoting ourselves, <laughs> just at the moment, it's, it's not of interest, particularly to us, and we're, we're fortunate enough at the moment to, you know, have a good bit of work stream coming into the office of interesting projects that doesn't require an investment as well. Yeah. yeah, I guess you've constantly got that, um, that interest, people contacting you. You've probably got more than enough of opportunities, right? I guess that takes the pressure off of things. Yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to expand drastically. So at the moment, we've, yeah, we've got the work to, to, to not necessarily require some sort of marketing campaign, self-promotion yeah. as well. But we also deeply appreciate every client that we do have. Um, they are, they're all, all our projects are very important to us, you know? Absolutely. And that comes across in, in the, the quality of the work. I mean, the reason why I'm talking about this is not to, um, you know, say that you're not doing it well or anything at all. But it's just people listening in on this uh, podcast will be some people will just be starting out in design or architecture or starting a business and just good to have a different perspective um, from what they might be seeing. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much emphasis on social media and those sorts of things in terms of that as a great enabler. And I don't know what the evidence is to support it, you know, getting out there and getting visible. Mm. Well, you're, you're in marketing, so but very often you hear a phrase now, JOMO, instead of FOMO, which is the joy of missing out. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Yes, I know. Um, that's very good. That's very good. Um, let's talk about some of more of your recent projects. I saw um, the Cottesloe is one of the most beautiful spots in the world. Do you guys live there? Uh, nearby. Nearby. That is, and Indiana Tea House, which um, did you, you've designed it. Is it being built? Was it, was it a competition? That's the image I saw earlier today. So that was a competition. Uh, we were invited to do a competition on that. There was a, a foundation over here called the Mindaroo Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they, through one of their commercial uh, entities had taken on the lease of the Indiana Tea House. So they had quite a wide-reaching competition of Australian firms. Um, and we were down to the last two. So yeah. while, yeah. Well, maybe just to set a little bit of context for that, the Indiana Tea House is an existing building mm-hmm. on Cottesloe mm-hmm. Beach. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting because it was built in the 90s. It was built incredibly cheaply under a somewhat dubious still I don't know the full history of it but okay. and it's the fourth building to have been built on that site and oh, wow it's not great from an urban level it doesn't engage with the street and do the things that we all try and do now with buildings so that they contribute to the urban fabric um, mm. it doesn't provide a lot of amenity in terms of change rooms toilets and all this so it has these sort of fundamental issues it, it hasn't worked as a kind of successful F&B space for years Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was seen as, you know, what is the opportunity on the site 
to do something different. The, the, the flip side of it is it was done in this sort of Indian sort of Raj style architecture yeah. and it's become quite a, you know, a, you know, there's a sort of sentiment for it within mm-hmm. that certain parts of the community. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a sort of delicate and fraught process to consider rethinking that site, but the Mindaroo Foundation decided they would like to look at it and rethink it and see what ideas architects could come up with for that site. Yeah. And I think the feeling was if there was an idea that the community supported and loved that went through a jury process and um, was also selected by an architectural jury, there may be sort of momentum to reconsider that building, which does very little at an urban level on Cottesloe Beach. Um, so that's the sort of context of the competition. Okay. As Sean mentioned, we were shortlisted down to the final two. Um, okay. but and I think what what's interesting about that is that you had a client who was willing to invest in design uh, to gauge public opinion. You know, there was they had, as Patrick said, the jury vote, and then they actually did went through this whole community consultation process where they exhibited it at various key points in Paris to because Cottesloe is seen as being such an iconic part of Paris to try and gauge the public response. And to me, that's really, you know, that gives you a lot of hope that you have a client that wants to engage, Mm. not just in that sort of education of design, but also to see what the public really think about design on on many levels. And while the results kind of created a sort of hung situation, it shows that a lot of people obviously, you know, that, that type of architecture that was created in the 90s is appealing to people still that sort of whether it's a postmodernist approach or a POMO approach that did actually find quite a wide range of appeal and the, the two schemes that were shortlisted ours and the and DBJ that you know maybe they hadn't totally ticked the box for the, the majority of, of people yet even though there was you know significant sort of uh, appeal to the public for those two schemes so I thought it was an interesting experiment on design and involvement in the community and design mm. that, you know, if they were going to move forward with this project that was at the heart of Paris, that was at the heart of their community, yeah. the public had to buy into that. And interesting, because you were right next door in Fremantle to Cottesloe. Yeah. Was the winning practice in Perth? No, so the jury selected the Durback Block Jaggers proposal. Oh, they did, okay. All right. Let's keep quiet yeah. about that, guys. Let's not promote them too much now. No, the public vote selected ours. Yeah, I'm sure they did. What the hell went hap- What happened then? Neil <laughs> so must have said something. It was a hung jury situation. <sighs> well, I guess it's similar. I must, they must have used the North Bondi uh, RSL as a, a case study for a successful outcome. Similar setting, yeah, isn't I mean, it? You know, Derbeck Block are doing great work. Derbeck Block Jaggers are doing great work at the moment. So, look, it's it's all part of the spirit of competing with your peers. And, you know, we were were really happy to get where we got to. You know, personally, I did swim at Cottesloe Beach when I was a small child. And I did have a strong emotional connection to that place. But, you know, we all move on. We just sort of, you know. I'm sorry to bring it up, guys. I know. I'm sorry. I do think that's, yeah, the, the the importance of not only that client engaging in the design process, 
but also the community being able to feel like they actually had a genuine say in it. I think. And, and I mean, it was amazing. It was front page of the paper. There was um, how often does architecture become this public discourse where people, you know, are quoted from all over the place. It's in the mainstream media. It was big news in Perth because it's such a a well-loved place for the Slope Beach, you know. And yeah. so there was a lot of sense of ownership of the site. And as Sean mentioned, I think it's it's so healthy to be able to talk yeah. about design in a public forum with an engaged and active community. It's good. That's really cool. I mean, let's talk about a project that you have won and built or building. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. King's- Thanks, yeah, so let's talk about those. Yeah. Well, no, I, 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 I love, I love your proposal. Um, King Square in Fremantle. That's obviously where you guys are based, and that was. Let's talk about Fremantle a bit about its heritage because it's a, a an old port, right? Uh, yeah. Well, there's many things. It was important place to the Wajak Nungar before it was anything like a port. Uh, but yeah, post settlement, it became a prison, I believe. First, possibly, then a port, then an even bigger prison, and then they built a few churches, then merchants started to establish themselves, including a former president of the USA, which he, his office used to be based in the building where our office is. Oh, wow. Um, Herbert, Herbert Hoover ran his interests out of here. Oh, that's fine. And uh, so it then has two UNESCO World Heritage sites now, one being the prison. Uh, with the uh, its attachment to the whole uh, prison network in Australia, and also then the West End of Fremantle, uh, with this whole heritage trade context, with all these sort of warehouse buildings that were built to service, I suppose, both the wool, gold, cattle, timber industries out of Western Australia, and then I suppose the other elements like the Roundhouse Prison. Uh, in the West End. So our office is right down in the West End of, of Fremantle. Mm. And it's, you know, it's, it's a really interesting place culturally, I suppose, during the, the 60s and 70s, Fremantle sort of had a bit of a opt-out culture and it's always been a, a little bit more of a left-wing kind of uh, environmentally conscious part of Perth. Mm-hmm. And uh, not, not that that's the main drive, but it's just interesting in terms of that kind of subculture that it creates in Fremantle mm-hmm. and then that mixed with the migration that you would have had originally uh, pre-war with I suppose different communities from Northern Europe and then the Mediterranean communities that came after uh, the Second World War you've got the Italian, Portuguese, Greeks all sort of opening up that sort of food and, and in more recent times Fremantle has really sort of embraced that kind of food and drink culture and it's it's quite an, an active and vibrant place down here, especially uh, sort of over the weekends. It's funny that sort of heritage fabric, let's call it, built in the 1910s, supports creative industries quite well. They're sort of fairly low rents. They're mm. fairly small spaces um, that are, are easily, you know, broken into smaller parts. So it's kind of got a this sort of ecosystem. There's a really high concentration of architects working in and around us here, um, which yeah. also creates a nice sort of camaraderie and a nice culture around architecture here. So. Yeah, I was always, I was impressed with the scale of the, you say they're quite small, but the, the, the buildings and the shops seem quite large to me in terms of warehouse and 
like yeah, solid. Yeah, so grand sort of facades and then a warehouse behind that. And mm. then, but they're sort of, um, compared to a CBD office, you know, a big office building, they're sort of, you know, you could, a, a smaller creative company probably yeah. finds a yeah, one of those on, and the Reds are less than the city. <laughs> How did King Square come about? Well, it's a city of Fremantle project, so it's a council project. Um, they were in a in a existing building which is attached to the town hall, um, and we had quite a visionary mayor called Brad Pettit, who um, he and the council at the time looked to create a kind of private public partnership with a developer to redevelop an existing Bones warehouse. I don't know if you guys had Bones in Sydney, but it's a, a shop. It's like a Maya shop. It was a massive okay. box, concrete box, right in the middle of the city that wasn't really working very well. Yeah. Um, so as part of a sort of general redevelopment with a private partner, um, the council redid their own offices, which they were, they were in a sort of, it was, you know, a bit oh, of a mistress riddle yeah, mismatch of a building yeah. that was not functioning really properly and didn't support a modern council to work properly. So this sort of, I guess this partnership emerged that would deliver this, you know, pretty amazing result for the heart of Fremantle, which would see the Bones warehouse turned into a, a big government office for 1,500 people and then the council building redeveloped. So they had an architectural competition for that. And we were shortlisted down to three and from there ended up winning the competition. So yeah. that was eight years ago. This must be cool in a city that is, has such historical buildings to be adding something like that, of that scale. It's very modern, very much about people and the community. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely is. But uh, I think a lot of the lessons that we have learned from Fremantle uh, are lessons that have been employed in the architecture as well. You know, Fremantle over the hundred years, the protection of the streets, the weather protection of the streets, and the natural ventilation of all of these old buildings, and then the typology itself. You know, the extension of public space into the building to allow the community greater access into the heart of the building. You know, having the, the library all on one floor so that the community can you know, fully engage with this open library typology. Mm-hmm. And then the visibility of the, the chambers itself and the sort of accessibility of democracy within the, the context of Fremantle. We, we felt, you know, there was lots of important pointers for us uh, within the Fremantle context about community, about governance, and about the sort of public realm that we have here that sort of helped us start to think about an architecture that could be while contemporary in its form, very much off its place. And for another scale is the Project Farmhouse. Is that one of your places? That is, yes. Your, your homes? Oh, no, not one of ours. Okay, good, <laughs> good. I was going to get very envious so there. One, one we've designed, it's not one oh, we've God, that's beautiful. Has that been built? Uh, that has been built, yeah. So that's um, down in the southwest of um, WA, so, and a, a really amazing site. There's a... There's a little spot, a little band of foothills that run southwest of Perth that are one of the few places in WA that get very consistent rainfall. Mm-hmm. WA is pretty dry all around. So it's this beautiful green belt of foothills that runs south, sort of southeast of, of Perth, and it's uh, situated in those foothills, and it's a beautiful site with amazing aspect. And yeah. So that's a private residence? 
That's a private yeah. residence. And I guess yeah. it's, you kind of feel like that's kind of kind of feels like the Amman influence, no? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, that is that is where that client came to us from. Um, they they had stayed in Amman's, and they you know there was a desire to sort of recreate that experience for their extended family. Um, so okay. that's it, that's. A, yeah, that's very much where that project came from in terms of its conception. Yeah, but a degree of intergeneration design in it as well, and how a building can expand and contract, and you know various different ideas. I suppose around the pavilion building, which has the main sort of dining, living experiences, and then the dormitory wings, which peel off it. So, yeah, an interesting way to translate that sort of small resort hotel typology into a sort of residence and then Donnie the, the place where it is has um, a series of it's a big fruit picking place so it has these sort of timber sheds where they um, pick the fruit so the mm. design sort of picking up on those sort of primal agrarian forms I guess yeah. and, and what about the School of Indigenous Studies which is in Perth that's a building for UWA so um, yeah that was uh, we were sort of undertook an interview process and um we, we went on a kind of journey with the School of Indigenous Studies. They're an interesting part of UWA. They, um, they teach um, courses around Aboriginal culture and history, um, and they also have a kind of pastoral service where they look after the Aboriginal kids who are coming from remote communities, um, the students on campus. So it had this sort of dual role, which was really interesting. And, you know, for us, the site was this amazing location right next to the Yarragun, which is the Swan River. Um, and, yeah, had these beautiful marriage trees. So it was very much a sort of landscape and site-driven response. We looked to sort of extend the ground plane up into the building to create this additional sort of connection with landscape from the building. There was a strong desire for these sort of informal teaching spaces in the landscape around the building. So... Yeah, it's been, that was finished for probably about eight months ago. And, yeah, I think it's been pretty warmly received by the school. And, um, I think, yeah, we're, we're really happy with it too. It's yeah. been a, a good... How, how does it feel? Because you guys, you know, architects always do wonderful visuals and renders. I mean, I've, I don't know what's real or not real anymore. But what does it feel like? You've already visualised the future, what something's going to look like. How does it feel to you when the building's alive with real people and it's active and it's got the, the real energy, et cetera. How does that feel? I mean, you're probably used to it because you do it all the time, but does it still touch you or does it still do something to you each time? I, well, for, on a personal level, yes. I think that's probably the third most important thing. I suppose earlier on I was talking about the, the importance of the client and the importance of the, the design process and I'm making sure that that process sort of achieves the greatest possible outcome, but I suppose that greatest possible outcome is measured not only against the, the design, the craft and the construction, but also how the users actually inhabit those buildings afterwards, you know, and, and there's no, I suppose there's, there's no greater praise or, or, or satisfaction than when somebody just comes upon one of your uh, your designs, one of the, the pieces of architecture that you've worked on. and and is in praise or in comfort or in awe of, of that, that design because it means that something that you have designed for a specific brief and a specific client 
has achieved an even greater and wider appeal and now sort of achieves, I suppose, higher design aspirations than maybe where you set out, out from mm. and whether that was through the design process um, or that sort of conscious understanding and responsibility to achieve something better for the environment and for the wider community mm-hmm. as an architect. I think that that's really important. Does it always live up to your expectations as you designed it? We, we try and achieve designs that we are satisfied with prior to going to site. Mm-hmm. And then the tricky thing as architects is then you start to lose a bit of control. So the tricky thing is, I think, building relationship with people that are actually putting the buildings together to try and work together to make sure that you can achieve the best possible outcome with the sort of contractors and the builders and the craftspeople. I think architects like to be in control, but you sort of relinquish a little bit of that whenever buildings go on site. So it's just a case of, I think, building relationships and and measuring how you can uh, best achieve those design outcomes working with other people. Do you step uh, step outside uh, your comfort zone, or do you do like do you push yourselves beyond what you know? I was just going to say, I think that every time a building goes on site, it's instructive. You know, you, you take lessons, things you thought would work really well, maybe aren't as impactful. Things that um, you might not have given as you know, it's that real world realization of a project is. Although we're very highly trained to imagine in their scenarios, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, there's nothing that is, you know, there's nothing that sort of um, substitutes for that light condition, that way people move past something. Mm. So, you know, and I think as architects, you've got to be applying a critical, a critical approach to everything you do, and that includes when something's realised and real, and mm. you know, looking at it critically and saying what's successful, what isn't, what can we take as an instructive lesson for our next project. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because your, your, your projects obviously will, will last forever. You know, a lot of them will last a very long time. Projects that we might work on might last, you know, three or four or five years maybe. Um, ours, I guess ours are kind of quicker and more agile. And I guess that's why architects are often quite, um, you know, highly considered and, and slightly cautious and, um, you know, there's a lot at stake with what you're doing. A lot of responsibility, right? I think when when you're in a conversation about design and someone says, you know, why can't we just do this? Yeah, often cautious <laughs> and highly considered is how I would describe our reaction. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, not only is it going to be there forever, but the thinking that's led to that point often is not just the thinking of the architect, it's the thinking of a whole series of experts to get to that point and we're sort of across that that expertise in any given moment so yeah i think um cautious and considered is, is, is often the temperament around that and i guess you know the, that protective nature of the design comes from that you know the howard rock sort of fountainhead how how has technology the advancement of technology changed the way that you do things or, or has it there's always been an aspiration in this office to work as much as possible within three dimensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that from a very early stage, Kerry embraced this whole idea of, 
you know, there was a transition from the physical model into uh, 3D designing within three dimensions on a computer whenever it started to become fast enough and, and visually capable enough. And I think that that has become our sort of primary sort of mode of experimenting mm-hmm. with design currently through various different programs. But it's that constant sort of interrogation of the building in three dimensions has, has been very important. That's the kind of primary technological driver, I suppose. Uh, environmental technologies, construction technologies, we, we're kind of constantly experimenting with those mm-hmm. ideas, but they sort of feed into the design process more than drive the design process. I think the design process is primarily driven from a, a sort of three-dimensional understanding of what we're trying to achieve at any one time. Mm. And the practice going forward, what is your, what's your guys' vision for the future? World domination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, Belfast. Yeah, I've six, month, six yeah. months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I think we're pretty comfortable with the size of practice that we're running at the minute. Mm-hmm. I think we, uh, we enjoy challenging new typologies and we really want to sort of develop the office into something that obviously Kerry would have been proud of, but obviously that we can be proud of our, ourselves in, in terms of what we're delivering, uh, in terms of the design quality post Kerry. And uh, we want to maintain that those ideas of craft and rigor and, and process uh, and yeah, sort of. Hopefully, we can keep delivering these great outcomes, so that we can still keep working with the great clients that want to give us these briefs and commissions. Mm. Uh, don't think we have any massive as- aspirations to expand into anything larger than than what we have. But I think it's about keeping the quality and driving the quality and driving our younger architects to uh, sort of recognize the importance of that idea and sort of bringing them through as well yeah and it's um it running a business is, it takes a lot of time too do you guys run it together or is there someone in charge of the office we we pretty much run the office together yeah. so yeah we we sort of deal with the business side we have a third director that's based in both singapore and uh, <clears throat> he uh, is a director of the Paris office that's justin hill Mm-hmm. And Justin has been with Kerry for ooh, 35, 40 years. So he is a director on both. Yeah, and I mean, I think his role has been really important in transitioning us to a sort of post, you know, Kerry world without Kerry. Yeah. So, you know, but, and I think in terms of day-to-day running of the business, so it's probably more me and Sean. So mm. that's, that's really how it works. It does take up time and we, we all... You know, I think both of us are primarily architects. That's why we got into it. So running a business is a somewhat of a secondary part of, the, yeah, part yeah. of our profession in a way, you know. I mean, you, you, you'd understand, I'm sure, Vince, that... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that it's a lot of time learning how to run a creative organization, isn't it? It's, uh, and do the work. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've, we've got creative people in our, that's who we work with. And, you know, we must keep, you know, it's important to keep them engaged. And um, They're a bloody nightmare, creative people. Creative people. <laughs> it's really good having conversations like this, though, because it helps you, uh, helps you keep focused. Sometimes whenever you're uh, working and you're sort of, you know, focused on the sort of immediate tasks, you don't sit back and have conversations about aspirations and you know mm. where the work has come from um it's 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 a it's a benefit i think to to constantly self-reflect and and look at uh, where you've come from where you're going and what you've done in between it's like a therapy session Vince. yeah no i i personally in, in, enjoy therapy no i enjoy having these conversations <laughs> i mean i think that the more people you talk to through life who are in you know different types of you know projects or backgrounds or countries etc it does really help kind of enhance yours and, and look at, well, hey, actually, that's something I quite like or that's something I haven't thought of or maybe I'll try that. Um, it kind of coming back to kind of the idea of designing your life and how might you design the best life possible uh, as if you're designing the best building possible, best library, best hotel, best home, best vineyard. You know, it's like when we, when we tackle design projects, we, we, we have a time frame, uh, a budget, often never enough. Um, but we were kind of held to, okay, a brief, you know, to help us achieve this goal, help us get to this outcome. And we all as creative people just really want to give it everything we possibly got to make it happen. It's interesting when you look at your life or your business or your career or things like that, people often don't look at that in this, with the same passion or the same determination. They kind of let yeah. life happen mm-hmm. because they're really busy doing their thing. They're really busy working. They're really busy you know, have no time to actually sit down and go, you know, what, what if I was to draw up my life? What might it look like? Uh, yeah, I think it's really, it's really interesting, that idea of seeing your life through the lens of the project or the office through the lens of the project. Um, it's a very interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Have you guys designed your life? <laughs> One, two, nine. Yeah. Spend <laughs> <laughs> the rest of my afternoon. Yeah. I'll tell you yeah, what. Yeah, I do that. We'll put a project under. When, when I come, I'm going to fly over to co- the Hakomo and stay in there for two days and not leave the room. But once, once I'm ready to leave the room, maybe we could meet upstairs in the Mellow uh, Private Club and we can kind of talk about it in more detail. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> All right, guys, it's been so lovely uh, catching up with you. Thank you so much for your time. No worries, Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to this episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers with Kerry Hill directors Sean McGivern and Patrick Kosky. Tune in next week we will be catching up with the Sydney-based architect Angelo Candelepis. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.